The reading is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. If you have your Bibles, I hope you can have it open to Philippians 4, and if not, keep that open. I'm just going to get mine. I left it down there. Shall we pray briefly? Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight to bring you glory and honour in Christ Jesus. Amen. If we walked in to worship this morning, and there was a huge crack right down the centre of the roof and big cracks in each end wall and you can hear it audibly groaning and increasing by the moment. Do you think we'd be sitting here just calmly? I don't think so. I think we'd be rushing out... um, Do you think then once we get outside, we'd then be having a quick discussion about, oh, um, Alan, can you just go and get a few sheets of colour bond roofing and uh, someone got some spack filler and just do a quick patch-up job so we can come back in? Do you think we would act like that? I don't think so. We'd be out of here, we'd get engineers in to check the foundations, something's obviously changed. And if that's true of the physical fabric of a building, of a church, then how much more should it be true if we understand what church really is and it's actually the people and if the church membership was split down the middle? We'd want to do something about it, wouldn't we? I would hope so. So the sad thing is, too often, Conflict bubbles away in churches and it's sort of skirted around. Oh yes, that's what we don't talk about. And we miss out the reality of what it means by us being the body of Christ. I've witnessed church splits and they can be devastating. So that some people even vow never to set foot inside a church ever again. And I've even heard someone say something like this, I give up on faith in God altogether. You see, sadly, conflict is part of the fallen human condition. It occurs all the time in the world and it certainly occurs in churches too. So, what do we do about conflict? Well, there's a huge self-help industry. It's out there just waiting to take your money. Shelves of books, bookshops, 
uh, on Amazon or you can Google and when I go this is the first thing that comes up Wow look there's lots of good advice practical advice first talk with the other person focus on behavior and events not on personalities listen carefully identify points of agreement and disagreement prioritize areas of conflict so on you know we may say oh, that sounds pretty good yeah pity more churches didn't do that sort of thing um, we'd have less trouble maybe it'd help there's a problem though that sort of advice starts at the wrong place. Let's think about it. This church in Corinth that Lee has been taking you through the letter to uh, and has given me three verses to preach on. I'll have a chat with him about that some other time. Um, three verses. Hey, Lee, you did all of chapter three last week. How's it? Anyway, he... When he said this was the text, I shot him off an email. Uh, mate, this isn't fair. I'm now, if I'm to preach this, I'm going to have to do a lot of repenting and praying before I can even get started. And he replied with something like, uh, right, that's so I don't have to. Thanks, mate. Um, so he's very humble, his brother Lee. Anyway, the church in, Corinth, in Philippi experienced conflict. But in writing to them, the Apostle Paul didn't make the mistake of starting from the wrong place. And before we go diving in to chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, we need to set the background too. You see, there was this issue. They were arguing. Some were taking sides with Euodia and some with Syntyche. In this background, what we need to understand is context is critical, even in reading anything in all of the Bible. And a common problem for evangelical believers today is not so much the issue of the culture of the Bible, but it's the issue of our own culture and the glasses we read the Bible through. We have an individualistic society, scientific mindset, atomistic tend to break things down into their smallest parts and analyze them intently and that's really not the way to read the bible and it is a common problem we take our culture and we use that as a grid we can't help but do it to read the bible and i fear that often we're apt to take verses out of context and make them say something they're not really saying so let's check the context in Acts 16, Paul planted the Philippian church and it was full of diverse characters. I guess the church was probably diverse like this church is and pretty much any church would be in Perth. For a start, there were lots of women, uh, including wealthy, cultured Lydia and a slave girl who'd been demon-possessed. Uh, the, the church included what you might label as a battle-hardened thug, the Philippian jailer, the famous Philippian jailer. He would have been an ex-soldier. Those were the sort of blokes who became jailers in the Roman Empire. It was their sort of retirement plan and that's the way the government worked. And they knew what the deal was, they knew discipline and they would be able to control the riffraff who ended up in jail in any given 
port of call, including Philippi. So when you think about it, no wonder there'd be conflict with such different people. And yes, by the time Paul writes to the church of Philippi, they are in conflict. Paul has hinted at this right from chapter 1. You may recall at the end of chapter 1 in verse 27, he had said, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There's an agenda in those words which becomes clear as you read chapter 4. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, there's a famous passage where Paul exhorts the people to have one mind and humbly count others as greater than self, following the example of Jesus Christ. So when we get to chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And so you read that and you realise, hmm, therefore, what's it there for? Thus, what's it pointing back to? So you look back just a little bit to the end of chapter 3. And it says there, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So here's Paul. He's about to tackle head on the problem he's hinted at throughout his letter, division, which focuses on the sides taken in a dispute between two women. But he doesn't start with practical advice like we'd find on the internet. He doesn't start that way. To handle conflict in a God-honouring way, first of all, you've got to get your mind out of the horizontal, out of the mire of the mudslinging, he, she said, he said, and people are unhappy with themselves down here. You set your mind on your heavenly citizenship and how Christ's glory shines in and through each of you. That's what he's doing here in chapter 3, verse 20 through to chapter 4. So you see how you can tackle the relatively, what seemingly may have started out, a relatively small issue of life by applying the biggest truth. Get this clear. You use cosmic truth to get a clear perspective on mundane, ordinary, supposedly simple problems. The principle is use big truth in little places and it'll transform those little places for you. You get a different perspective. You see it clearer and better than when you're just stuck in the mire of this little problem. Now, you think about it, this is opposite to our culture's ways. Bestsellers on handling stress or conflict, they always go straight to method. Always. The books on dealing with pressure and conflict never start by tackling the big questions such as what happens after we die? Is there a God? Is there a judgment day? Are there moral absolutes or are moral standards 
just subjective feelings caused by different brain chemistry in different people and so it doesn't really matter. What is the meaning of life anyway? How do we know anything? Those are big questions, aren't they? And the modern bestsellers avoid those big questions. Why? Because publishers and writers, they want to cater to the widest market and sell the most books or the most blog hits, most advertising. And, of course, writers don't want to alienate Buddhists, atheists, Muslims, Jews or Calathumpians by answering those big questions with biblical answers and so they give up by page eight and completely attack and pan your book or your blog and never go there again and tell all if No, no, you want to make money out of this, you've got to make an industry out of it, so you avoid those big questions. Keep them away, we'll just deal with the practicalities. And it all comes, honestly, in the end, it just comes down with to be nice advice, frankly. Nice advice. So they jump to method, where it be meditation techniques or uh, steps to negotiate conflict like we've seen already from Google. Talk to the person. Duh. Um, focus on behaviour and events, not on personalities. Listen carefully. Now, that's where you end up. And they might tweak it a little bit, but it's basically the same. So you see, writers today never start with the big picture, but the Bible always does. And as we review how life in the church at Philippi may have been turbulent, with such diverse characters making up the body of Christ, we see that's the kicker. They're the body of Christ. And it's stated here, citizenship's in heaven. It's all about Jesus. Stand firm how? In the Lord. How do we agree? In the Lord, whose names are written in the book of life. We're all one in Christ. It's the key identity that we have. You know, in the Bible, you don't see the word Christian. It's, well, once or twice. I know it's in, yeah. For those who, who know your Bible, you can see it a couple of times. But, you know, the key identity for us is in Christ all the way through the New Testament. That makes a difference. See, Christian can almost be a pejorative word, a swear word today, especially in the way that the culture wars are erupting around us. But saying that you're in Christ, that's, what does that mean? Maybe gives you a chance to unpack some of this beautiful reality for us. But you see, Paul knew about a turbulent life. And he knew about having been opposed to those of the way of Jesus. And he had been almost killed several times, jailed several times. He was writing this letter from jail, after all. He'd been shipwrecked, snake-bitten, and he had appealed to Caesar and was hoping that he was about to appear before the court of Caesar. To handle all that turbulence, you need strong internal stabilizers. You need a strong identity. And it's not an ethnic identity. It's an identity of who you really are in the biggest picture, and that is you are in Christ. 
That's how he saw things. Those are the glasses that he used. Now you think about ships or planes. On planes, their vertical rear tail fin stabilises them from wobbling side to side. The horizontal tail fins stop them from bobbing up and down. Really handy things to have. Ships have them too, to try and smooth out turbulent waters a bit. But Paul's stabiliser, I just repeat, it's in Christ. He's found there. So nothing happened to Paul on earth that could touch or affect the fact that he was a citizen of heaven. He was in Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. I'm just putting up the same words, ramming it home. In the Lord, our names are written in his book of life. It's a guarantee that he will transform us to be like him in due time, as chapter 3 verse 21 says. And so Paul is appealing to this life-stabilising truth as he writes to these ladies and to the church. Whew context. Done. Now let's have a look at it. We don't know what the problem was between Euodia and Syntyche. Paul doesn't take a side like he does with other conflicts in other letters. He names names in other letters too and he gets stuck in so he's quite prepared to do that but this time he doesn't do it. Hmm. Think about the dynamics here. He's in prison in Rome. Philippi's a long way away, so this must have been festering for quite a while for him to have time to hear about it, pray, think, and then respond. It's been festering. So why address it? Why not just allow them to agree to disagree? After all, that's the way you do it, isn't it? Well, disagreement falls short of the one-mindedness and humbly putting others' interests before your own, which he's talked about right the way through this letter. So the reality of the doctrine that he's given earlier on in the letter has to be worked out in the practicalities of life. And here's where the rubber meets the road. How can you count someone as more significant than yourself and still hold a grudge against them? You can't. Which means we must actively seek to resolve conflict rather than just to allow it to fester and bubble away. A broken relationship is still broken, even if there's civility and politeness around the edges. It's still a broken relationship. Even if you keep your surface calm, you're practising Zen or something, it's still a broken relationship. And if the conflict between Euodia and Syntyche was not a doctrinal or a moral issue, it must have been interpersonal. And those are more divisive. In my experience, and I've experienced a few, it usually begins as a disagreement over a judgment call on something. It isn't the difference between right and wrong, but between good, better and best. You see there's this continuum and my line is here and you're back there. I'm in the right and you're in the wrong because I've chosen the better and you're just choosing the good. And there the disagreement begins. 
it's a subjective thing. It's based on personal preferences. And if the issue isn't resolved early, it'll do like what it's done here in Philippi Festa. And it's especially the case where efforts of reconciliation end up with, well, we'll agree to disagree. And I've even had that said to me many years ago, and it, it really did sadden me at the time, but I didn't know why. I was much younger and I just hadn't thought it through clearly. Why is that a problem? Well, it's, James, can you turn me down a bit, please? Yeah, I'm just, and I'm sorry, I'll speak up! But I don't like the echo. Because each side ends up thinking that they are right. If you agree to disagree, well, we agree to disagree, but everyone knows I'm right. No, that's what you think. What may have started a small disagreement can then lay the foundation for something far larger because people begin to align with one side or the other and each is looking for a slip-up on the other side. Failure of the other person it would lead to vindication. Oh yeah, yeah, this shows. This is what I was talking about. They've done it again. And we justify ourselves. And if you've been in church for long enough, you've probably witnessed something like that. And it destroys relationships. It distracts believers from our God-given task. Living out the gospel in a way that will attract people to Jesus Christ. So if there's unresolved conflict with people taking sides, how compelling an advertisement will this be for following Jesus. How can we rejoice together, which is what he goes on to in verse 4, how can we rejoice with that sort of attitude? Now let's think about some of these general problems that are associated with interpersonal conflict. Why do we have arguments in the first place? Elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus' brother James tells us that it has to do with being envious, wanting what someone else has. Proverbs 13 verse 12 warns us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. If we don't get what we desire, we're naturally unhappy. And if that's unaddressed, if we don't deal with that, disappointment can turn into anger, which turns into resentment, and it just builds. And what keeps a conflict from being resolved? What might it be? Well, in the end, it's wanting to prove that you're right, to justify yourself, or thinking that my interests and needs are much more important than theirs. And most conflicts could be resolved simply by us considering others more important than ourselves, being like-minded, choosing to rejoice in the Lord instead of being resentful in ourselves. You see, when I'm willing to set aside my pride and my emotions, and if I really value the other person's interests more than my own, how can I, at the same time, promote my cause at their expense? I can't do it. I really can't do it. If I'm truly thankful for them, how can I resent them at the same time? Or resent what they have? 
And then more than that, and I've been repeating it enough times, I hope you've got the message, Paul exhorts each of them to agree in the Lord. And this phrase doesn't come out of nowhere when he uses it here. He's already used it a couple of times in chapter 2. I've put, I'll put chapter 2 up. At the beginning there, famous passage, you may well remember it. Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, how? By being of the same mind. And then he goes on, and of one mind. He repeats himself, if you haven't got the message. And this same sort of phrase is used in chapter 4, agree in the Lord. Same words. That's the message. He specifically exhorts them to be of the one mind. You can't do that in your own strength. You can't do that just by following a bit of self-help off the internet. And Paul does two things in verse 3. First, he requests this, his true companion step in to help resolve the issue. And the second thing he does, that might be surprising to us, almost counterintuitive, but he praises these ladies. The two women whose dispute has so affected the church, they are described positively. And don't think this is slight language he uses here because it's the same sort of words again that he's already used to describe Timothy and Epaphroditus, his good mates and great helpers in the gospel. He uses the same language of Euodia and Syntyche. He's not playing with words here. He views it seriously. He sees these as wonderful people and he realises, hey gang, just remember who you are in Christ, remember your citizenship. And I think he's actually very confident that they'll get it sorted very quickly once they realign their headspace, as we might put it today. And so he commends their labouring with him in the gospel, adding that their names are written in the book of life. You know, there's certainty for you. He doesn't go, well, if they're so disagreeable, they can't be Christians. No, he doesn't say that. He's sure of their position before the Lord and he goes on to call them not just to begrudgingly agree, no, but to rejoice in the Lord always, as verse 4 says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So, throughout this letter, he is challenging the church to a higher calling, a higher standard, a total commitment to serve Jesus and advance the gospel. He has held up leaders, Timothy, Epaphroditus, even himself, as role models. And you think about it. He's holding up Euodia and Syntyche as role models too now, subtly. And you think about where they must be. That affirmation would just be a real spur to them, wouldn't it be to you if this was said of you? You'd think, wow, am I really? Yeah, I am that. Well, hey, I better live this out. He's commanding it. Imagine the effect it would have on their standing if the community, if they're held up like this and then they decide they're going to keep their Barney going in the background. They're going to look like hypocritical fools, aren't they? 
and they would lose all their standing in the community. But he knows, and he's already called them to it in chapter 1, verse 12. You might remember, he says, obey not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. He's got this in mind all the way through. By praising them as honourable fellow workers, he's backed them into a corner. This is amazing psychology before Freud and Jung existed. He calls them to find an honourable solution to their dispute. Holding grudges, maintaining battle lines, that'll bring shame on themselves, it'll bring shame on those who side with them. And while no doubt neither of them really wanted to admit fault, each of them wanted to assert their superiority, each of them wanted to justify themselves, after this sort of pointed teaching, they couldn't do it. They were, com- they were realised, uh, I can't have my foundation the way the world is. My foundation is in Christ. I've got to put that aside. I've got to move on. You see, there comes a point in interpersonal conflicts where everyone loses, regardless of how it started. The toll of backbiting, bitterness and resentment, it just leaves everyone hurt. You just look at political campaigns nowadays. Everyone gets dirty. Paul wisely presses for an end to these matters, not by choosing sides, but by describing what a godly, honourable person would do. And you know, even though the matter is only mentioned in two verses of chapter 4, I reckon the whole letter has this as the subplot. And the rest of this chapter 4 continues to address the whole challenge by raising the standard for Christians and saying, this is how you should live. And he lays it out. So we're pointed to the one who is the solution for all our disagreements. There is a person and there is a place where all of this will be overwhelmingly put right and rejoicingly put right. In Jesus Christ, we have glory by the power that enabled him even to subject all things to himself, as he says there at the end of chapter 3. Paul knows that when we look out on the church and the world and we see everything changing, everything in the mixed master of turmoil of our society and so much conflict, we need a rock of stability in the storm. No matter how good your marriage is, someone dies if other things don't happen. No matter how beautiful you are, how many facelifts you have, your face eventually falls. No matter what wonderful group of friends you have and you may rely on, they change or they move or they die. In this world, nothing lasts. There's no love, no joy, no friends, no strength there. But there's a place, there's a person in whose presence things don't just stay the same, they get better. Jesus, in Revelation chapter 21, I've put the whole verses 1 to 5, you can look at them there, but I'm going to look at verse 5. He makes this promise, Behold, I am making all things new. You know what that means? Well, in his presence things get better, stronger, You know the Olympic theme? What is it? The Olympic motto? Higher, stronger, faster. Well, Jesus just out-Olympics the Olympics. 
every day of the week because it's just better eternally new every second brighter fresher there's a place where love doesn't just last but it grows everything is eternally new there is a place you know this world it's just a blip in time and in the light of that there is just no place for bickering so we'll rejoice in the Lord always. And this mindset shields you. I really think it will shield you. If you're rejoicing in the Lord, you'll be shielded from that uh, bickering, that divisiveness, that envy, that backbiting, that arrogance, that anxiety, that sort of pride which splits. You rejoice in Christ in your heavenly citizenship. You lift up your thoughts because every moment is about eternity. Every single moment. How can you do that? Well, the key question is, have you submitted to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour? Do you belong to God's family? Because if you don't, all of what I've said this morning is it's just words. It's meaningless. You need to ask yourself if you've never done it. Because everything in the Christian life flows from this point. There must be a moment in your life, a time in your life, where you stand before God and say, Lord God, I confess that I'm a sinner. I am barred from your presence because of my sin. I am not of your glorious family and I have no claim to it. Yet now I believe that Jesus died for my sin. You have offered to take my place Lord Jesus, and to take me into your family and to give me new life, which is getting better every day through him. And Lord, I ask you to do that now. Amen. And if you do that, then God will make you a member of his spiritual family, the invisible church. You will experience new life in him. And for all who have done this, for his children, well, here we are. God commands a visible earthly unity. As in this letter to the Philippians, God commands live in harmony with one another. Now, we won't like it. It'll be hard. We can't achieve it without him, without his spirit. And if you're far from the Lord and walking away and just wanting to do your own thing, well, it's impossible to do this. The things these other people do, it'll get under your skin. It'll fester. To grow away from that path, you need to be walking this path to Jesus. And it may sound boring, but it's really simple. You just spend time prayerfully reading God's word every day, asking him to lift your sights, to see more of his glory, interacting in real and meaningful ways with other believers. I can testify to this. In the past, I've had fallings out, several. And right now, today, I joyfully worship and fellowship with a brother who I had a falling out with years ago. And it's just a work of grace. I couldn't have done it on my own. He will do, Jesus will do in our lives what we may see as impossible. Christian unity will only occur as we surrender ourselves to him, seek his will, have his spirit work in us, live in us, renew us daily to be the kind of men, women, children, young people that he would have us to be. Let's pray. 
Father, we acknowledge that in our own strength, we are far from what you call us to be. And it's for your glory that we gather here. So we pray that that would be evident in all that we say and do. May our conversation be tinged with the words of mercy and love which you call us to, with the thoughts of grace that you lift us up to, with the awareness that we are citizens of glory. And what we do here is now just a down payment of that, that you would be honoured not just now, but for eternity. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And we're going to sing again, I believe. I think. Ah, our response to the word. Great. It's handy if I have this up here. Sitting under my Bible. Sorry. Church, what do you believe? Let's say it together. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the